Welcome to 60 Weeks, 60 Books. Just how, just why, did the life of a shady chanteuse who died the year before I was born grip me so fiercely that I read and reread the wildly unreliable biography written by her companion and putative half-sister Simone Berthaud? My father loved music. Once he had the disposable income, he bought 45s, the small vinyl records that you could pick up for around a dollar, with an A-side which was a chart song, and a B-side taken from a secondary track from an LP. Songs I remember him playing repeatedly were the Drifters, Save the Last Dance for Me, all of the Beatles' Abbey Road, Sugar Sugar by the Archies, Anana Muscuri album, and Piaf. When Berthaud's book appeared in the school bookshop, I was primed and curious. And I still wonder who actually selected the books, given the wild unsuitability of the details of Piaf's alcoholic, drug-addled, promiscuous life for English schoolgirls. Berthaud's version of Piaf's life was translated into English with verve and pace, capturing Berthaud's own breakneck style. The book, it later turned out, owed more to wishful thinking than raw fact. Berthaud skewed the narrative considerably, and she played much less of a role in Piaf's life than she claimed. What she did write was an inter entertainment that did much to keep Piaf's legend alive. I learned rather more about La Môme from a wonderful TV documentary that was on the BBC in the early 1980s. So, what was it about the life of a woman who hauled herself from the streets of Belleville to become the most celebrated French singer of all time, that so intrigued a nicely brought up middle-class child. I have been reading a recent biography by an American writer, Carolyn Burke, which is a far more accurate depiction of Piaf's life, a comprehensive overview of not simply her rackety life, but also her development as a singer and artiste. It is fascinating because Berthaud simply did not know or understand how very intelligent and hardworking Piaf was. According to Burke, Berthaud was a disruptive and dangerous influence on Piaf, encouraging the singer in her propensity first for drink and later for drugs. However, Burke does not quite capture the charisma of this fragile, fast-living woman, which Berthaud does succeed in. Piaf comes across both in the book and on film as an absolutely mesmerising individual, totally committed to living life to its fullest, partying hard, loving hard, and performing non-stop when given the opportunity, two shows a day minimum. She comes across as vulnerable and tragic, a Judy Garland or an Amy Winehouse-style character, committed to performance and display but unguarded and seeking all too readily any means of stilling her unquiet soul. Part of Piaf's vulnerability comes simply from her tininess. She was around 4 foot 10 inches tall, 1 metre 47, but from that small frame came this huge voice, deep, wild, untrammeled emotion and a grasp of heartache that still sends shivers up and down a listener's spine. For me, there are two absolute standout songs, Milor, the tale of a prostitute pining for an aristocrat, and La Foule, about two lovers separated by a gathering throng in a Parisian street, very reminiscent of the ending of that classic French film, les enfants du paradis. Piaf struts, 
roars, rolls her R's through these two songs and captures a sense of the poignancy and inevitable failure of love. Both Berthaud and Burke skewer Piaf's complex and incessant love life. She took many lovers, married twice and had affairs with most of her collaborators and fellow musicians. The men she mentored and supported are a roll call of French entertainment. Yves Montand, Charles Lasnavure, Georges Moustaki, and those are just among the most prominent. She was also a fiercely intelligent woman intent on improving herself. She had an older friend, Bourgeat, who helped her engage with all of the ideas at the root of French intellectualism in the first half of the 20th century, as well as ensuring that she became well-read in classic French writers such as Molière. She liked Plato, she liked Bergson, she consumed ideas, poetry, sounds, concepts. She was a powerful lyricist and contributed highly to the songs composed for her. She was no cipher, simply standing and interpreting songs. Instead, she was a collaborator, a creative spirit, a muse and a writer of genius. She was also demanding when it came to rehearsal and preparation for her tours, meticulous in her demands. When you read Berthaud, you get the impression that Piaf focused solely on debauchery, but when you read Burke, it becomes clear that Piaf was ready and willing to put hours into the rehearsals so that the songs she sang gained in power, impact and influence. It may be that her performances look somewhat chaotic and random towards the end of her life. It is certainly true that she struggled to perform at a consistently high standard and was known for the potential to collapse on stage. But in her prime between 1935 and 1955, she absolutely delivered both in live performance and in her recordings. She was also a powerful actress, most notably in a short piece specially written for her by Jean Cocteau, who became a friend of hers in the late 1930s. He writes a monologue for her about a couple in a hotel room where the woman speaks to, about and at her lover, le bel indifférent, the beautiful indifferent one. He is in the room but ignores her throughout the half hour, reading his newspaper, and their relationship ends abruptly with a man harshly dismissing his lover. For Cocteau, Piaf was both a beguiling creature and a close friend. She was also good friends with Marlene Dietrich, as well as with many of the men and women she worked with, composers, accompanists, arrangers, fellow lyricists. In looks, Piaf was a classic French jolie laide. There are photos of her up almost to the end of her life, where she looks elegant and groomed with pencil-thin eyebrows, light, luminous eyes and radiant skin, but there are also pictures of her looking, even when quite young, rather rattled and shabby. By the late 1950s, she was prematurely old, even though she was only in her 40s. Thinning hair, sunken eyes, sagging skin. By the time she reached her 40s, the early malnutrition and the subsequent excessive drinking and drugs had taken their toll. She last performed and recorded in 1962 and died in 1963, frail, and racked with liver cancer. There are people who suggest that her legacy is lost, that she is less meaningful and memorable 60 years after death than Cocteau, who died on the same day. But I don't believe that is true. Quite apart from her singing and her wild life, there is also her outstanding courage and determination. 
Thanks to her general lack of conformity and refusal to engage with social norms, she navigated her way through her late twenties, defying the Nazis in occupied France in numerous ways. She sang deliberately provocative songs. She ensured her stage lighting symbolised the tricolore. She sheltered Jews and went to a prisoner of war camp on numerous occasions, where the photographs she posed in with the prisoners were then used as sources of fake ID to help the French prisoners escape and make their way through Germany and occupied France to relative freedom. Piaf was one huge hot mess. Those who argue that her work and life are no longer relevant have forgotten that teenagers absolutely adore a hot mess. Think of more recent stars like Matt Healy of the 1975, Pete Doherty of the Libertines, Amy Winehouse previously mentioned, and all the other chaotic members of the 27 Club. Piaf produced songs and performances widely available on YouTube that are still powerful and enthralling today. And I'm sure that just as I discovered her at 14, there will continue to be young women who encounter her music and her life and find it just as compelling as I did. Next week, join me for a look at another classic of the 1950s, Catcher in the Rye. <laughs>